Well, I have to say, it uh, week in and week out, uh, it is always encouraging to get to gather together and sing with you all. Uh, to sing to Jesus, to sing about Jesus, uh, to sing about the salvation that we have in Him. That's uh, always uh, encouraging, and I need that uh, each and every week. Amen? And, and how uh, that lifts up my own soul. And so you, you encouraged me, and I pray now that I'll have the opportunity to uh, encourage you from God's Word. And uh, this is uh, going to be the, the last uh, in our series uh, that I've been uh, teaching through on the church, uh, the household of God, what the, the church uh, is called to be and uh, do. And uh, what we're going to look at uh, today is the assurance of the church uh, is victory. Uh, and hopefully this, this will be a lot more encouraging than last week's uh, message uh, on persecution, uh, the expectation of the church. Uh, and uh, back when I was in, in high school, uh, and I, I read for the first time uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, series, The Lord of the Rings. And I remember uh, in the second book, the, the Two Towers, there is this one point in the book uh, where our, uh, the, the, the characters in the story are uh, in this mountain fortress uh, called Helm's Deep, and, and they are uh, being invaded by this uh, army uh, of goblins and, and orcs, and it, it's night, and there just seems like there is no help. And I was distraught as I read that. Uh, I, I was very concerned and, and worried about what was going to happen. Uh, and I won't, won't tell you what happens uh, in, in that in case you haven't... Uh, read those books, which I would uh, highly recommend. But what's, what's interesting now is that if I were to go back and, and read, that, read that book again, and, and I have, because it's worth reading multiple times, but, but reading that book a second time, guess what? I wasn't distraught at, at the Battle of Helm's Deep. And do you know why? Because I knew how the story was going to end. I knew how everything was going to, to play out. I wasn't concerned who was going uh, to live or, or what was going to to take place because uh, as I was reading, I knew the ending of the story. Uh, and, and all too often in the Christian life, we, we live moment by moment and we forget how the story is going to end, Right? We live and we act like we don't know any other information except the, the circumstances that we are facing yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But we know how the story ends. God has given us the beginning and He's given us the ending in His Word. And when we forget how the story ends, we end up living in fear. We end up living in anxiety. We, we live in apprehension or we begin to accept alternate endings, right? Maybe it ends this way. Maybe I really do need to be worried and, and stressful and maybe I do need to curl into the fetal position. Uh, or, but uh, when we forget how the story ends, that is the end result. And at the, at the very beginning of this series on the church, I... I spoke about the, the big picture of the, the story of the Bible. The, the Bible, 66 books, uh, 40 authors written over a period of 1,500 years. There is one story. Uh, and that story really has six parts to it. 
Okay? And uh, I think at the very beginning of this, I showed you my unforgettable artwork that uh, the youth ministry is very familiar with. But uh, there's six parts to this story in the Bible. And it begins with creation, which we just got to read about this week uh, as we've been reading through uh, Genesis. Uh, and what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God created the heavens and the earth uh, in six days. And he has declared all of his creation to be good. But then in Genesis 3, what Bruce talked about in our equipping hour this morning, that is what we know as the fall of man. Adam and Eve, though they lived uh, in the the perfect environment, they chose to receive uh, the input and the counsel of, of the serpent and to rebel against the holy God that had created them and put them into paradise. That's the God that they chose to rebel against. And as a result of their rebellion, all of creation fell under the curse of sin. But even in the middle of God saying, I'm going to now bring a curse upon creation, he also promises redemption through a redeemer. He tells the serpent that one of the descendants of the woman is going to eventually crush him. Uh, And with that promise of a redeemer, uh, the the story kind of moves forward. And the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 through the end of, uh, in our Bibles, the end of Malachi, what we have is the unfolding of who that redeemer is going to be and what he is going to do. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, we see the redeemer arrive. We see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's going to live a, a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and then he's going to rise from the grave on the third day. He's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to conquer sin and death. That's the redemption that he is going to accomplish. And now everybody who looks to him in faith, no longer trusting in ourselves, but trusting in who he is and what he has done, we will be rescued, reconciled, redeemed. We will be at now peace with God rather than uh, at war against him. That that is what Jesus came to do. He is the redeemer promised in the Old Testament. And now we live in the church age. And that's what we've been looking at. What is the church? What are we supposed to do here on the earth? We call this the, the anticipation stage of human history that where we as a church, we look two directions. We look backwards at what Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross, what he has done. And then we also look forward to his return when he's going to return and judge sin, when he's going to make all things new and make all things right. And we are going to live with him uh, in eternity. So we look forward to that. And so we live in the in-between phase now. And God has has given us a a purpose within that, to go and proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to point people to Jesus, to be ambassadors for Christ. So, So we live now looking two directions, but then ultimately what is going to take place is the restoration of all things, that sixth and final portion of history, the the sixth and final portion of the story of the Bible. When Jesus will come back. And we know that that is how the story ends. And if we know how the story ends, we need to make sure that we live like we know how the story ends. 
And that's what I want to focus in on this morning, the end of the story and how we are called to live in light of this ending. Because the ending of the story has day-to-day, moment-by-moment implications for us right here and right now. And this is what I want to look at. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're we're going to begin. We're going to, to look at the assurance of Christ's victory. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read, beginning in verse 13, we're going to read through verse 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus takes his disciples over to uh, the coast. And he takes them to a, a place called Caesarea Philippi. And while he's there, out and away from all of the, the, the Jews and the, the Israelites... He says, who do people say that I am? That there's no pressure. That there's no one else around. Who, who do people say that I am? And, and they, they give him some tentative answers, right? Well, it could be uh, John the Baptist. It could be Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty. Because it doesn't really matter ultimately what other people say about Christ. He says, what do, what do you say about who I am? And Simon Peter, always being the bold one, speak first, think later. Uh, But this is a good moment for him to speak first. Uh, And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Redeemer we have been waiting for. The Son of the living God. And Jesus commands Peter. He says, yeah, Peter, you didn't figure that out all on your own. See, even when Peter says the right thing, it's not even, he doesn't even get credit for it. Uh, He says, you didn't figure that out all on your own. It was my heavenly Father who revealed that to you. And then I want to focus in on what what Jesus says next, because he's going to make two promises. Two promises to his disciples. And the first is that Jesus promises to build his church. In verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's much debate on what is the rock. What is it that that Jesus promises to build his church upon? Uh, And uh, ultimately, what we need to understand is that what Jesus is saying he's going to build the church upon is not Peter himself, although the apostles are the foundation. So in one sense, that's true. But it's more on the confession that what Jesus or what Peter just said about Jesus is going to be the foundation of the church. That's what Jesus is going to to build upon. And as I spoke uh, 
couple weeks ago, Jesus uses all of us. We, we are instruments in his hands uh, to, to build his church. Uh, but it is not due to our service that the church grows. He, it is always Christ who is the, the reason for the growth of the church. That's what it says here. It doesn't say believers will cause the church to grow. What does Jesus promise? He says, I will build the church. And the emphasis here is upon the certainty of the church being built. This is a divine promise. And, and the fact that Christ has promised to build the church also means that, that the plans of Satan against the church will never succeed. That he will not be successful in trying to tear down all that Christ builds. Satan will always seek to tear down, but Christ is going to build unceasingly. Even as we saw last week, the church has ever and always been under the attack of Satan, facing persecution. But the building and completion of the church is guaranteed with certainty. Try as he might, Satan will never prevail. I love uh, the, the words of a song written by Martin Luther, a mighty fortress. And Luther wrote this verse. He says, And though this earth with devils filled should threaten to undo us, he will, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And, and, and the promise that Jesus gives to us, that he will build his church, guarantees no one is going to be able to come and tear it down. That he will be successful in the building of his church. And then secondly... Jesus promises victory over death. Verse 18, Because I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the gates of, of hell, or the, the NASB says the gates of Hades. Hades is, is the place of the dead. Uh, and so what is being said here, this is not Jesus promising victory over spiritual forces. That's spoken about in, in the promise to build his church. This is a, a promise of victory over death. Gates are defensive. They're not offensive. So Jesus is saying the gates of, of hell, death shall not keep Christ from accomplishing what he is saying. He promises victory over death. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 Paul says this, We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The resurrection from the grave shows that Jesus defeated death. It no longer has sway over him. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children, speaking of believers, share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Until Christ came, Satan was, was ruling and reigning, and he had the power of death. But Christ has been victorious over death, over the grave, over sin. And now Christ promises victory to everybody else who would believe and trust in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, speaking of our future resurrection, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? 
And, and that is the truth. That is the reality for everybody who has trusted in Christ. Death is not defeat. That we have hope. Jesus has promised us victory. And you might be familiar over the, the course of sports history. There have been many athletes who have promised and guaranteed victory. Most famously, uh, Joe Namath, uh, the quarterback of the, the New York Jets, promised in Super Bowl III that his team was going to beat the Baltimore Colts, who were heavily favored. And that worked out okay for Joe Namath. He became famous because his team won. But you know what? What's not talked about as much are how many other athletes have made guarantees uh, and it hasn't worked out. Uh, And there have been numerous occasions of that. And when you think about it, when an athlete makes that type of a guarantee, when they say, I guarantee my team is going to win, do they really know that? No. They have no idea. The the first play of the game, they could go and break their leg and be done. (laughs) And then their team is without them. Well, when an athlete makes that type of a guarantee, they're just speaking out of bravado. And they may have confidence in their team. And what they're really saying is, I guarantee that my team has the possibility of winning. We have a good chance. I like our odds. I think we're better than them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not promising the possibility of victory. He's promising victory. Not just, hey, this could potentially happen. I like my odds against this, uh, this opponent that I have. I think we can win. I think we can beat him. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is speaking what has been given to him. If you turn from Matthew chapter 16, turn back into the Old Testament with me to the book of Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is not speaking out of bravado here. He's actually speaking very humbly. As the one who has been given all things. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Speak of a vision that Daniel has. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven. Or with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And that's speaking of God the Father. So there's one like a son of man who comes to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that, here's an exact number, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus isn't speaking out of bravado. He's just saying what is. What has already been given to Him. All nations all peoples, all languages. And as Joe read in Philippians 2, we have a kind of a a similar passage that Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you also turn with me, we read Revelation 22. Turn with me to Revelation 19. 
we will see what else happens at the end of time. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. You're going to see Jesus riding as a victorious king. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's us, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Christ riding out victoriously. And again, we know the end of the story. We know that we will be with Jesus on that final day of victory. Revelation 19, Jesus judges the nations. And then Revelation 20, we get to rule and reign with him for a thousand years here on the earth. And then, believe it or not, At the end of that thousand years, there's going to be another rebellion. And Jesus deals with that quickly. Then comes the final judgment. And then in Revelation 21, we see the new heaven and the new earth being established. And we will get to be with God. We will be in his presence just like it was in the garden, but even better because in, in the garden there was the possibility of Adam and Eve falling into sin. But in that future heaven, there will not be that possibility. That there's not going to be a second fall. Creation is not going to, to slide back down into sin and rebellion and a curse. What we see in chapter 21 verse 4. That he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That is what we get to, to look forward to. That is the victory that is not just possible. That is the victory that will take place. That is the assurance that we have. That we are following a risen and victorious king. And and knowing the end of the story is going to impact our lives in many, many ways. But what I want to look at today are are three tangible applications of that. If this is the, the victory that, the assurance of victory that we have in Christ, why does that matter? Well, first, it gives us boldness in persecution. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. And building off of what I talked about last week, that the church should expect persecution, trial, and tribulation in this age. That is what was promised us by Jesus. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. And so what we should expect is exactly that, not anything less. 
And if we have that assurance in Scripture that we, we should expect persecution, how do, how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it by understanding and knowing that we will be victorious even in the middle of facing persecution. And if we have that assurance in Scripture that, that Christ is with us, that Christ is victorious... Uh, the Great Commission, sometimes we, we, we emphasize that we're to go and make disciples, uh, going, baptizing, and teaching. But what does Jesus say at the end of that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, knowing that we serve a victorious king. And, and look with me at Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. This is Paul on his, his first missionary journey. And toward the, the, the end of this journey, but... It says that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, what's, what's really intense here, stoning was the, the, Hebrew, the common Hebrew form of execution. Uh, and, and usually people were not stoned lightly. And what probably took place here is that they probably felt that that Paul was blaspheming. That was a, a capital crime uh, to the Jews mentioned in uh, Leviticus chapter 24. And so they said, we're going to stone this guy. And he, here he comes and, and is, is saying that, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer that we have been waiting for, was rejected and that we killed the Messiah, we killed the Redeemer. And so they stoned Paul, and then they, they took him outside of the city, because what did they think? They thought he was dead. That, that's typically uh, what happens at an execution, right? When you're, when you're saying, hey, we need to execute this person, you're not just trying to hurt him badly. The goal is death. And so there's, there's debate here for, by Bible scholars of, did Paul really die? Or, to kind of refer to the Princess Bride, is he only mostly dead? Uh, but, uh, but think about this. So, so Paul is, is stoned, dragged outside of the city. And then look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas and Derby. Now think about that. If you had just been stoned, where would you go when you got up? Anywhere else but except back into the city. Think about that. So if, with Paul going back into the city, what is he willing to accept? Being stoned again. Being put to death. Think about that. That's boldness. Why is Paul not concerned about being stoned again? Because even if he doesn't die, that's still going to hurt. That, that's not going to tickle. But he's willing to, to go in because he knows he's going to be victorious. It gives him boldness in the face of persecution, knowing that he's on the winning side. That death is not defeat. And boldness comes when we know that, when we are convinced of our assured victory. And victory doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. But it does mean that even if our life is taken, we are still victorious. I love this. Another uh, historical event called a, a story in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. 
the tale of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. And, and Nebuchadnezzar makes a, a gold statue of himself and then commands everybody to worship the statue. This is what Daniel chapter 3 says. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the music, the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... To fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to this very angry king. Easy to be intimidated in this situation, right? What is it that gives them boldness? They say to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Nebuchadnezzar says, Who's going to save you? And they say, Our God is going to. But then this little portion, and oftentimes we we pass over this. But they also say this in verse 18. But if not, our God is able, but if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That even if God doesn't save us, we're ready to go into whatever you have prepared. We're ready to face that. And that's the type of boldness in the face of persecution that we can have if we are assured, if we really believe that Christ is victorious. Last week I I mentioned uh, the the reign of uh, the Queen of England known as Bloody Mary. She was a Roman Catholic and when she came to power... The the country had been uh, Protestant and kind of in the middle of a Reformation. She came to power and then she began to immediately persecute and make martyrs out of all the leading pastors in the country. One of them, Robert Farrar, the Bishop of St. David's in Wales, was, was martyred by Queen Mary. And on the day of his execution, he said this to a friend. He said, if you see me stir in the fire, If you see me cry out in pain, you can disregard everything that I have taught. He was so sure that in the middle of those flames, he would be at peace. Because he had an assurance of the victory that Christ had accomplished. That's what gave him boldness. That's what gave him the courage and the bravery to face those flames. But I'll ask this, if, if that type of assurance can come from meditating and thinking about the victory that Christ has, if it can uh, motivate martyrs to face the flames unflinchingly, can it give us boldness to talk with our neighbor? Can it give us boldness to face a little bit of pressure at work or, or conversations with, with family members? May we be convinced of that same truth when we are mocked and jeered at. We're not facing the flames. But we need to be convinced of this victory ever 
just as much. This truth in assurance of our victory in Christ will give us boldness in the face of persecution. Secondly, it would also give us confidence in ministry. Confidence in ministry. Because Christ not only promised victory over death, what did he also promise? He said, I will build my church. And so we know that as we minister in his name, that Christ is with us. That that he will do the work. We don't know who... We don't know how many, but as we go about ministering, as we go about proclaiming the gospel, as we go about discipling, lives will be transformed. People will come to know Christ in a saving way, and they will be made new. The old will be done away with, and they will be a new creation in Christ. And we can have confidence that that will take place, even when it seems like it doesn't. Even when it seems like the world is so against us, who is ever going to trust and believe the message that we are proclaiming? But a, a absolute conviction that Christ has been victorious, that he will build his church, that will give us confidence in ministry. And if you are still there with me in, in Acts, just turn over to Acts chapter 18. When, when Paul was facing hardship in the city of Corinth, this is what the Lord told him. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's how we need to to view our own ministry. The Lord has people here in Meridian, in Nampa, Boise, Caldwell, Emmett, Star, Cuna, wherever you are. The Lord may have people there, and we don't know who they are. But what are we called to do? We're called to go and proclaim. We're called to go and be witnesses, to go and be ambassadors for Christ. And as we throw out the message of the gospel, as we live as salt and light, we will see the Lord work. And we can have confidence that he will work because he has promised to build his church. There's a man named William Carey. When he was just a boy, he had a, a skin disease that, that forced him to, to get indoor employment. So he became a shoemaker. But uh, William Carey's cobbling skills were not that great. But while he was waiting for people to bring him shoes, he was able to learn five languages. And so uh, he said, hey, maybe, maybe my gifting is with languages. So he opened up a language school. But it turns out his shoemaking skills were better than his teaching skills. Uh, he, was a, he was a quick learner, but he wasn't a, a, a sound teacher of languages. And so uh, what he began to do is, is well, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll go into to ministry. He felt called to go uh, with a uh, denomination known as the Particular Baptists. But as, as he went into ministry, his preaching skills were even worse uh, than his teaching and shoemaking skills. And it took him two years to, to reach even the, the minimum level of preaching for ordination. So he worked and he, and he labored and then he 
was now a pastor in the particular Baptist denomination. And when he was just 26, he, he set out to, to change his denomination's mind about missions. Because his denomination felt that people were just, the Lord was going to save. We don't need to go and preach to them. If the Lord wants to save people halfway around the world, he'll do it. But William Carey said, no. The, the Lord's going to do it, but he's going to do it through us. So he, he labored and battled to convince his fellow pastors that they needed to form a mission society to go and proclaim the gospel. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the debates on this subject, uh, one of his fellow pastors yelled at him and said, When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And so it was a, it was a hard work that William Carey faced, even just trying to convince his fellow pastors that they should form a mission society. But eventually he did convince them. And then he and his wife, along with another man who was a doctor, volunteered as missionaries with that organization to go and be missionaries in India. And William Carey and the doctor went ahead to India to, to kind of get things ready. And they were there for a year. And then after a year, William Carey's wife and children came. And what William Carey found that when he was there on the mission field, ministry was hard. That, that doctor who came with him ended up running off with all the money. And while they were there in India, two of his children died. And it, while William Carey was so focused on ministry, his wife fell into a, a deep depression. And after seven years of missionary work in India, William Carey had baptized one person. Talk about discouraging, right? But with all of that time and all of that effort, it did not go to waste. Because William Carey translated the New Testament into 24 of India's native languages. Imagine that, 24 different versions of the New Testament he was able to do. And that laid the groundwork for thousands of future missionaries to come to India. And it was the, the foundation of his work, even though there wasn't a ton of fruit. Was the Lord still going to build his church? Absolutely. And after his death in 1834, thousands of other missionaries from Europe and America followed in his footsteps. Not just to, to India and, and China, but also to Africa and South America. And, and what is it that motivated William Carey to, to go to India in the first place? What is it that, that motivated him to stay and endure through all of that discouragement when he was there in the mission field? So he was convinced that Christ would build his church. William Carey's most famous saying, and I, and I love it, and it, it was part of the, my motivation for, for coming and moving to Idaho and, and planting a church here. This is what he said. And you can hear his confidence in what Christ would do. He says, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. William Carey expected the Lord to work. He expected the Lord to build he knew he was on the winning side. He said, I just need to do what the Lord's calling me to do. I just need to be faithful in these little things and allow the Lord to grow, allow Jesus to build his church. 
The victory is not dependent on our effort. It's already been accomplished by Christ. But we get woven into the battle plan. Jesus says, hey, I've accomplished victory. Come join me in the fight. It's already been won. How encouraging that is then. The assurance of Christ's victory not only gives us boldness in persecution and confidence in ministry, but also thirdly and finally does this. It reorients our focus in life. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. What we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, we see it over and over again in the narrative of the book of Acts. Like I said, being stoned and then getting up and going right back into the city. That, that's boldness and a little bit of craziness. Uh, but he was willing to go and do that. And what we see in Philippians chapter 3 is... Paul's thoughts, his own understanding that motivated him to yeah, to be stoned, to, to suffer numerous things in service to Christ. Philippians chapter 3, the beginning of the, the chapter, Paul lists out everything that he had accomplished as a Jew. He had done everything that was asked of him. But then in verse 7 he says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is he was, he was so convinced of Christ's victory. He was so convinced that, that Christ was victorious over death. He was so convinced that Christ would build his church that he says, I'm going to leave everything else behind. I'm going to count everything else that I've accomplished in life as rubbish so that I can serve and pursue and glorify Jesus. That following and pursuing him is now his greatest expectation, his greatest joy. It's not focused upon his own hopes, his own desires, but he's completely focused upon Christ. Christ's victory transformed his life. He wanted to to share in Christ's sufferings. He wanted to become more and more like Jesus, his Lord and Savior, who had gone to the cross for him, who had accomplished the victory for him. Sin and death no longer have a sting. Sin and death no longer have any power. He says, now I'm going to live for that victor. I'm going to live for Christ. That's Paul's attitude as a believer, was to live now for Christ and for eternity. In uh, the last of C.S. Lewis's uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia, which is called The Last Battle, the, the, the end of Narnia has come, and those who had traveled to Narnia are, are saddened to see it go. And, and there's a, a statement made in there that says, Oh no, all that this life is is but the cover page for the real story. 
That's what we have to begin to see. And all of our years here on this earth, they're just the beginning of what we are going to see and experience in eternity. And we are called to live in light of the victory that Christ has accomplished. And may we be convinced that this life is just the cover page. Christ has won the victory over sin, the grave, and death. And he will build his church. And no matter what else is happening around us, we can be assured of those promises. And we get to be with him for eternity. We know the end of the story, guys. And now may we go and live like we know the end of the story. Amen?